Romans chapter 8, and I'm basically going to land around verse 24, verse 25, although I'm going to back up and, and just give a few remarks. I want to back up all the way to verse 18 just to give us some context or more context. Um, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see through perseverance, we eagerly, or excuse me, we wait eagerly for it. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we consider this passage and consider what you have written for us. Lord, help us to, to, to take this and allow this word to be engrafted into our very souls. Lord, I pray that you would give us hope that we would walk in hope. Or we recognize, we remember, we confess that one day the glory will be revealed and the redemption of our bodies will take place. So Lord, minister to us, we pray. Fill us with your spirit that we may hear that which the Spirit would say to each of us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. There is a ton of stuff here. We started jumping into this on Wednesday night, and we got through what? We got through almost a verse. Um, but it was a good discussion. Uh, I'm not actually going to go back to... to um, 18, 19, and really kind of stay out of 20. I'll probably look at those a little bit more uh, on Wednesday night. Um, but this idea of, of creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is interesting here because, as I mentioned on Wednesday night, he is personifying creation. And, and really, he's talking about this idea of, of, of the fact that when, when Adam sinned and, and the curse came upon mankind, uh, the curse came upon all of creation as well. And uh, 
part of Adam's curse was that he was now going to have to work the ground. He was going to have to till the ground uh, for, his, for his food. And it was a ground that was going to bear thistles and thorns and weeds. And uh, the, the strangest thing, I don't know about where you guys live, but um, where we live in May is like all of a sudden one day everything is fine. The next thing I walk out and there's like, 10,000 weeds per square inch, so it seems. And, and just it, it, how it feels like you're, like you're almost under attack with all these weeds that kind of crop up and then don't tell anybody, but I use the Roundup, right, and try to get rid of some of that stuff. And, but they're, I guess they're going to outlaw, outlaw or have an, I think they're outlawing that stuff. But anyway, um, it works. But, ain't <laughs> but um, it's part of the curse, Paul here then is personifying creation. He's personifying creation and saying that creation is groaning, awaiting its redemption, awaiting that that time that it will finally be at the place where it could truly glorify God in the way that it was originally created to do so. I mean, think about this. When Jesus went into uh, uh, Jerusalem uh, at the triumphal entry, and they, I mentioned this recently to you when they told his disciples to quit saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of David. And Jesus said to them, if they were to stop, then the rocks would cry out. Is he, is he speaking literally? He might be. He might be. I'm going to leave that to your imagination. How's that? But, but you know, as I thought about this, and I, I don't, I don't want to touch on this completely or spend a lot of time on this, but, I, but, but Christians among all people should be those who respect creation. They probably should be the best tree huggers out there. All right? In the good sense. So you're, okay, so you're not buying it. That's all right. But... Uh, but we, we should respect creation. You know, I, I, it, it would be distractive, distracting as anything, but if we opened up those blinds and be able to see those beautiful mountains and, and to see uh, God's creation at work, uh, watching sunrises, watching sunsets, uh, watching the snowfall, um, especially when you don't have to go anywhere. Um, just the beauty that, of creation that we live in and to be able to appreciate that, that God in his majesty and in his handiwork. I mean, I'm sure all of us live here for the most part because it's a beautiful place to live, right? Okay. Um, we came from other places that were not quite so beautiful. Didn't most of us? Of course we did. And, and so when I look at nature, when I go out in the woods, it's, to me, it's this just wonderful thing to where I feel like I'm entering into God's presence. I'm entering into his house. I'm entering into his place that really he made for each of us. And, and so creation fell under the curse. Can you imagine what it must have been like before the curse of, uh, of uh, humanity? There weren't any predators. And you think about Isaiah prophesying, and I, I, I believe it's, it's probably the millennium that he's talking about where he talks about the lion and the lamb lying down together. 
Try to do that today and see how well that works. But this restoration of, of creation uh, and how uh, it looks forward to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. Of, of God. It, it, we will walk in a freedom then that I don't think we understand correctly now. And what does that exactly mean? I'm not really sure. So it's, it's one of those stay tuned type of, of scenarios. But, but to, to be at this, at, at experience this glorious state of final redemption, of final restoration, the new heaven and the new earth that 2 Peter chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 21 speaks about. This is our future. To be able to experience the glory of God as God originally intended it. And as more as, as I'm standing here t- telling you about this, is I'm blowing circuits, right? Because it's like I, I can't really imagine what this is going to be like. But I know it's going to be wonderful, and I know it's going to be glorious, and I know it's going to be fulfilling, and I know that it's never going to get old or boring or mundane. We have a glorious future. We're on the winning team. In spite of the fact that we currently live in the cursed environment, the cursed creation. Essentially, we live, and I've been, I, I, I don't think any of you like it when I say this, but I believe the church lives in exile today. In fact, I'm going to end with that in Hebrews 11. But if it is this good now, And I have to say, I really think Christians in America have very little to complain about. That's just my opinion. Your mileage may vary on that one. I understand. But I think we have very little to complain about. But if it's this good now, imagine what it's going to be like with the redemption of our bodies especially as we are all getting what? Thank you. We'll just leave it at that. How's that? I'm wanting to be redeemed a whole lot more than I did 20 years ago. I wake up in the morning sometimes and everything just seems out of sorts. But one of these days, the fullness, we will experience the full. Have have our bodies been redeemed now? Essentially, yes. They are the temples of the Holy Spirit, right? But to experience redemption in its fullness, to experience salvation in its fullness, in its completeness. And and as I've shared with you many, many, many times, this idea of the kingdom of God, that it's, according to the Gospels, it's here now, but it is not yet here in its fullness. 
and to be able to really understand and to appreciate the glory of God, though we see dimly now, yet we will see face to face. And we, we have this glorious future to look forward to. This is the hope that we have been saved. This is the hope that, that, that Paul starts talking about in verses 24 and 25, this, this, this redemption of our bodies. Because actually he's bringing it in. Uh, he begins to talk about it in verse 18 where he talks about the, the, the comparing the sufferings of the present time to not be worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul writes the book of Romans right around somewhere in the neighborhood of 57 A.D. And he writes to the church in Rome. Depending on what history book you read, Nero begins his persecution in Rome either 62, perhaps as late as 65 A.D. They don't probably, they, they may not realize it. I don't know if they did or not. But I, I read this and I'm thinking he's prepping them for what's to come. For the persecution that was to come. That although it was not widespread throughout the entire empire, there were, there were like little spot fires all over the place. That's really how the, the, the persecution of the church took place in the first three centuries. Actually, two and a half, but anyway. Nonetheless, he was prepping them for a time where they would go into some serious suffering, a time that they would go into some serious persecution. And when people are being faced, uh, are, fi- are being faced with a, a time of serious persecution and a time of serious suffering, what gets them through it? Hope gets them through it. And it is a hope that recognizes that deliverance may not happen in this lifetime. It is a hope that recognizes that that deliverance may not happen in the here and now. I'm amazed at the things that we put our hope into. And we wrap it up really nicely and dress it up really nicely like a Christian Christmas gift. When in reality our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And that's what Paul, I believe, is is calling them into here. Because one day our mortal bodies, he says this also in Revelation, or excuse me, Romans 8.11, but if, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, uh, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53 says, For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. We are going to be immoral. I said that incorrectly, didn't I? <laughs> Time to close in prayer. Have another cup. Anyway, we're going to be immortal. We're good now? <laughs> You're welcome. Sorry. Remember how I said earlier that you wake up some mornings and you feel kind of out of sorts? Anyway, okay. We're going to be immortal. And, and that, that work of changing our mortal bodies into an immortal, had to be careful here, body, will be the work of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. But then Paul goes on to, to, to interject this idea of hope. And basically he's, he, he tells us, if you hope in something that you see, you're not really hoping, are you? Because, well, some of you are probably hoping I'm going to be done in 15 minutes or so right? That's yet to be seen, right? So that would truly be hope. But Paul is bringing out this idea that hope is something that takes us beyond our present situation. It takes us beyond our present reality. It's something that we can project out toward. Something that we have an understanding of. But it's not something that necessarily we can see with our physical eyes or touch with our physical hands. We've been told in many places in Scripture, we were really told here even in Romans 8, that that, that full extent, of the riches of our salvation has yet to appear. As I said, it really, we really have an incredible future in front of us. We read it. Hopefully the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that it is true. But have we yet experienced it? Can we see it? The full extent of the riches of our salvation, can we see them? Do, do, can we, do we experience them? I don't think we do yet. But we're given this hope. And, and, and again, as I, as I thought about this, When we talk about hope, to me it's, it's interesting because faith, hope, and love to me are very tightly intertwined. There are three things that will last, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of this, those are, is love. Of course, that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us this. And often it is that when we engage in hope, what I think what it does is 
can, it doesn't always, but it can imply that there is something better to realize, there is something better to experience, there is a better uh, situation that will happen in our lives in the future. I, I think, and this isn't a great illustration about it, but but um, I, I think of this idea of of the donkey and the carrot. You remember the story of the donkey and the carrot? I, I don't know whoever came up with this idea. You take a stick and you tie the stick to the neck of a donkey and the stick goes out in front of the donkey and you dangle a carrot just outside of the donkey's reach. What does the poor donkey do? He's walking around trying to get that carrot. Of course, if he learns, if he swings his head, anyway. Um, and often that is kind of what hope is like. Because what does that carrot do for that donkey? It keeps him going. It keeps him moving. He keeps walking in pursuit of that carrot. And again, the experience and the extent of the riches of the fullness of our salvation is kind of like that thing that has been set before us. And hopefully that, those are the things that, that get us up and get us going each day. Now, I'm, I'm not looking to die anytime soon. I, I, hopefully none of you are either. But to know that when my life is finally done, And incidentally, I think when our our life is finally done, when the Lord says it is. And hopefully we've done what we have been called and led to do within that time span that we've been given. That we have that incredible eternity that awaits us. Again, the redemption of our bodies. and I see it a lot of different ways, but I almost envision us always, all of us being like 20-something hard bodies, you know. And I'll have a full head of hair, a very long full head of hair. But anyway, and, and, um, but nonetheless, to really experience God in a much greater capacity than I can now. To me, that's the real heaven of heaven. Not the new bodies and the, all of that stuff, even though I think, I think that's important and, and that's part of how, how God wants to bless us. But to be in his presence, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked, the psalmist said. And, and, and to be, be, to be uh, you know, one thing I desire, David, uh, in one of the Psalms, uh, and that will I, will, I, will I seek to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I thought about that 
earlier this week. David just wanted to be in God's presence. That's what he wanted. He just wanted that closeness, that next-to-ness with God. To experience that fellowship. And, and, and I, I believe because we have been created to worship God, it is when we are worshiping God that we experience the fullness of who we are as people. And so we have the, this hope that is that, that's set out before us. But if, but if we hope... Verse 25, we hope in that which we do not see. Through perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. We wait eagerly for it, which I find fascinating. Again, in the grammar, Paul is, is, is using uh, like a double compound in, in this word to wait eagerly, which emphasizes the, the, the sense of the drawing and the longing and the yearning of the heart to realize the full redemption of our body, to, to live and to experience the full extent of the riches of our salvation. Often it is that we apprehend our hope by faith. Like I said, faith, hope, and love, I think, are very tightly interwound. And, and to me, there, there's, there's no more, there, there's no greater uh, um, passage that really just gets me to thinking about faith and how it's intertwined with hope than in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, which I want to turn to now real quick. Hebrews 11. <clears throat> 11. In Hebrews 11, verse 1, and in the, the New King James, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. I read a couple of different trans translations on, uh, on that particular verse because I, reading it in the New King James, it's, to me, I, I don't grab it real well. But the English Standard Version says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Have you ever hoped for something that you never received? We probably all have. And you know how that feels. But what I've even thought of is particularly as a kid when I would hope for something good to happen whatever that would be. Let's say, I hope I got to go to Disneyland next month, which I rarely did, but anyway. Um, I would hope for something good to happen, but immediately in my head, I would start thinking, 
It's not going to happen. It's not going to take place. And so instead of having, now of course, again, I'm using this as an illustration, but instead of having faith that something good was going to happen, I started doubting right away. And what the writer of Hebrews, I believe, is telling us is, is that those things that we hope for, if we have an assurance that they're going to take place, that's our faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Again, those two are very intertwined. And the conviction of things not seen. You know, as I think about Christian, basic Christian doctrine, you either have to be crazy to believe it or you have to be inspired and breathed upon by the Holy Spirit to understand it, one of the two. Because much of our faith is wrapped around convictions of things that we have never seen. And so, we need the element of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, to, to make these things come alive to us, in a sense to convince us that, yes, in fact, we can hope in these things, and yes, in fact, that they are true. And to have that assurance, that faith that they are true, and to be, have a sense of conviction even though we have not seen these things. I love the book of this, this particular chapter because, again, it's known as, as, the, as the, the, uh, the Hall of Faith. And, and without going through it, it you have a mentioning of uh, the, the first part of chapter 11. You have a mention of Abel. You have a mention of Enoch, uh, Noah, Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, Abraham's wife. They're all mentioned here. And, and just what, what really grips me is what is said about them in verse 13. These all died in faith. Who? Abel, Enoch. Well, Enoch was translated. Noah. And actually, it says here he died. Never mind. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. They all died in faith not having received the promises. Let that sink in. Were they all given incredible promises? Yes, they were. According to what the writer of Hebrews tells us, they didn't receive them. At least not in their lifetime. But having seen them afar off, you know, thought about this. What does it mean to see something afar off? You're looking at something at a long distance away. Now, when I was younger, that was easy to do. But if I'm, if I'm looking, let's say, way across that field and I see this figure, it's like, is that a deer? Is that a dog? Is that a 
person? Is that, you know, I don't see it clearly. I cannot examine the details. And because I can't see it clearly, I cannot examine the details, then I know I cannot get intimately really acquainted with what I'm looking at. I only have a very limited understanding of what I'm seeing because it's so far. It says that they saw these things afar off and they were assured of them. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. They were assured of them. They embraced them and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This is in our home, folks. We're a part of a much greater kingdom. We're a part of what God has promised for us. We are a part of that which God has instilled in us a hope to receive someday. And we're strangers and we're pilgrims here. That's what the scripture tells us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 says that while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The things that are not seen are eternal. Those things that they saw afar off and, and were assured of them and they embraced them, confessing their allegiance to the kingdom of God, recognizing that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, what's a pilgrim? Besides the guy that stands next to the turkey in the display at Fred Myers, right? A pilgrim implies that someone is on a journey. A pilgrim implies that someone is on not only a journey, but a journey that has a specific purpose. A journey that has a specific purpose. Mainly, the, the word is often used today for someone who is on a journey with this specific purpose to get connected deeper with God. That's a pilgrim. That is a sojourner. And they recognized that they saw these uh, uh, promises afar off, but as pilgrims, their job, their focus, their heart's desire, job is not a good word, sorry, scratch that one. Their heart's desire was to be a pilgrim who walked the earth in recognition to the call of God on their lives and their desire to know him and to know him more. That was Abraham's heart. 
That was Sarah's heart. That was Noah. That was Enoch. And I thought about it last night. That was Abel, which we're not told a whole lot about. Other than he had a brother with an attitude, right? But he offered a sacrifice to God, and it was what? It was accepted. He was in right relationship with God. It was his blood that cried out to God from the ground. What's that about? Is that just some type of poetic expression? Or was Abel that in tune with God? I'll let you think about that one. Doesn't say. Can't tell you either way, right? But to me, that, the, these type of things in the Scripture, they fascinate me. We've been called, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, 7, we've been called to walk by faith, not by sight. We've been called to live a life of expectation to one day experience the fullness of our salvation. An expectation for the full redemption of our bodies. We've been given great and wonderful promises that I have to say that like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and all the others that I mentioned, I see those afar off. I see them afar off. And yet as I'm getting older, I also feel like I'm getting closer. But it's more than just a reasoning thing. There's a sense there. And so we've been called to be pilgrims and strangers. All my life, the world has not really liked me. All right? And I know a lot of you are that way. Some of you, we have a hard time liking you here. So anyway, you understand that. But I'm kidding. But anyway, but, but strangers, because this is not our home. And when you think about that, no wonder why creation groans. Because it has become something that based on God's original design was not his first and full intention. That we would walk with him in the coolness of the day as he came in the same way as he came looking for Adam back in the book of Genesis chapter 3. That's our destiny. That is our hope. I see it afar off. But again, one day it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Amen.